Oh my goodness, hasn't it been so rich already today? <laughs> Hallelujah. I just, I love that we have a worship team like we do that lets us sing songs like that. Didn't they do a great job this morning? I mean, just so good helping us worship. I think that Aaron is probably the one who chose that last song, don't you? Because my goodness, the skins are burning over there this morning. He went after it. One of my wife's favorite romantic comedies is the movie While You Were Sleeping. Anybody seen it? While You Were Sleeping? Look at all those hands up there. I've seen it more times than I care to count. And in this movie, Sandra Bullock, for those of you who haven't seen it, plays a young lady who's enamored with this handsome bloke who keeps coming through her turnstile. She's, she's, they live in Chicago, and she, uh, she serves at the, the place where you buy the little token so you can get onto the train and, and commute to your job. And she sees him come through every morning, and she's just, you know, starstruck with this guy. And, and one morning, he, he manages to fall on the tracks and, and hit his noggin, get knocked unconscious, right? And, and you've seen this in movies before, right? Then what happens next is a scene in the hospital and all the family is gathered around in a circle around the bed waiting for him to wake up. And, and he wakes up and, and certainly what's on his face, right, is there's that look of disorientation as he looks around at the circle of people and, and you realize he does not know who he is or where he is. And then all kinds of hijinks and hilarity ensue for the rest of the movie, Right? As disciples of Jesus, growing one step closer to him, I, I think that we are all in a constant danger of a spiritual... Get, what, do, what do they call that when, when someone doesn't, doesn't know who they are and where they are? Amnesia. We're all in danger of a spiritual amnesia. It, it can happen on a daily basis for us. When we awake in the morning... I don't know how often I've said it here yet, but I've told frequently people who are close to me that I wake up every morning an unbeliever. I get that from C.S. Lewis. When I read that he said, I read that in one of his books, I thought, oh, I feel so good that someone else like him feels like I do when I wake up every morning, just cold-hearted. I have to warm my heart again to remind myself who I am, where I am. It's precisely this kind of disorientation and lack of understanding that I think Paul now addresses here in Romans chapter 6. But we must not forget that this comes to us in the midst of a story that he's been telling in the letter to the Romans. So let me take you back to chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. You remember what we did last week, right? We saw that, that it was a bit like, we imagined a bit, a bit like a play, and, and there were various characters that were being introduced onto the stage, appearing on the stage, characters like sin and death and grace and life, and that final character that kind of sidled in, you know, old Black Bart, his name was the law. We saw in this story that these characters didn't operate on their own, disconnected as separate entities. Rather, they were tied to two main characters in the drama of Paul's story from which flow two humanities and, and two kingdoms, two reigns, the Adamic line and the Jesus line, the line of Messiah we also learn that there is not an equality between these two spheres of power. There are similarities, but there is no balance. For one far outstrips the other, and it is the reign of the Messiah, empowered by overflowing and superabounding grace. 
And Paul has told us all of this to help us see that when we are granted faith by God in Jesus and are made right by his sacrifice on the cross, it is this superabounding grace and the life that goes along with it that overcomes our sin, which has been multiplied by the law, in a way that is far beyond anything that we could have imagined or dreamed. This is the staggering and surprising and superabounding grace of God, which constantly overwhelms all of our wrongdoing and has us standing in a place of peace and forgiveness and cleansing and hope. It seems too good to be true. To some, this message actually seems dangerous. Humans can't be trusted with a message like this. Grace? Overcoming all of your sin and wrongdoing without any work on your own? Won't that just result in a life that's out of control? I mean, sure, maybe a few good works here and there, but a whole lot of do-what-feels-good kind of living. You, you, You can't go around throwing a message around like this. And I can guarantee you that Paul heard criticisms like that. And so he can easily imagine the kind of objections which are have the very real possibility of being raised by the Romans. And his response is not to get defensive and back off from this message of grace. It's rather to double down and press in even further, to tell us more of the story. And Paul does this because, number one, Paul tells the truth. And this is the story. It is the reality. It's it's the way things actually are. And number two, he wants to keep pressing in and telling us this story because he knows that we're spiritual amnesiacs. We forget who we are and where we are. And we need reminding. And the best reminder that we can have is that as Christians, okay, note this, we live the story of the Messiah. Okay, you're going to hear me say that specifically over and over again today. That, that title, Messiah. Often in your Bibles, you'll see it as the word Christ, Christos. Anointed one or Messiah is what that means. It's not his first or his last name. Okay? Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. It is a title that had tremendous significance for the Jews and tremendous significance for Christians living in the first century because it is the fulfillment of everything that was being looked forward to. That God would come and set up his reign on this earth. How was he going to do that? Through the Messiah. So it's important that we keep hearing that because that's what Paul is saying He wants us to see that we live the story of this Messiah, the one who came to redeem us from slavery, the one who leads us out of our own exodus from a past ruler who only wanted to oppress and enslave us and keep us making bricks for himself. And he brings us through the waters and into a promised land of delight and grace and life and joy. That's what this Messiah does. But before I let Paul continue that story, In the words of Stephen Covey, I want to begin with the end in mind. I want to give you a visual that represents, I think really is all the way back to chapter 5, verse 12, all the way through chapter 6, 14. I want to actually picture the picture that I think Paul is giving us with his words. 
And the picture is that he wants us to see two spheres of power, two realms, two kingdoms. All of us are born into this first sphere or realm, and some of us are granted the opportunity to be transferred into the other sphere or realm. See Colossians 1.13, to move from one type of humanity to another, never thinking of ourselves in that original sphere or reign again. So I set my vastly excellent artistic skills to work to create a picture for you, a picture when Amy, our graphics person, saw it. She said, I'm glad you're a good teacher, (laughs) which I think I was slightly offended by. So two spheres of power. This is what we're going to see today. The sphere of sin's power that is aided by the sphere of the law, and the sphere of Messiah's power, aided by this kind of sub-sphere, if you will, of grace. We're born into one, and many of us are transferred into the other. Again, Colossians 1.13. That first sphere is that of sin's power. This is the Adamic humanity in line. It's the place where death is still a threat and has the power to punish us. It is a sphere infiltrated and aided by the law. See chapter 5, verse 20 and 6, 14. The second sphere is that of Messiah's power. This is the Jesus humanity in line. It's the place where death is no longer a threat because it has been robbed of its power to eternally punish us. Furthermore, this sphere is saturated and shot through with grace. See chapter 5, verses 15 to 17, 20 to 21, and 6. 14. And so what Paul now wants to drive into our minds and hearts, and if you got a service guide, hopefully you got a service guide when you walked in this morning, that little drawing is on your service guide as well. So you don't have to try and recreate that, not that you would want to. You could probably do it much better than I did. Paul wants to do now is drive into our minds and hearts and souls. Listen, family, this is my prayer that he will do this, is that when you are granted faith, To believe in the Messiah, you are transferred from one sphere to the other. Period. Full stop. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God, Romans 6, 14. Friends, fellow disciples of Jesus and children of God, this is what we are in danger of forgetting. This is the amnesia that threatens us, that we would forget who we are in Messiah and that we would forget where he has taken us into his kingdom and under his reign. And I want you to understand something this this morning, family. Look at me now. This is really important. Romans 6 is not primarily a teaching on ethical behavior. Is not primarily that. Paul is telling us the story of humanity, which is our story. And it, ha- and it is a story, first and most importantly, about what has happened to us in the Messiah. Don't forget that. We are acted upon. 
And it's then and only then, after we have understood that and rejoiced in that and experienced the truth and reality of that, are we then justified in saying, we have to let that sink in. I am in the Messiah. I am under his reign. I am operating in his power, by his power. It's only when we understand that that we can then maybe look at each other and say, now behave accordingly. It's so important to get that order correct. Now again, let me have you cast your eyes on 5, 12 to 21, just that kind of that block of text to remind yourself that Paul has just described that where sin multiplies, grace multiplies even more. In other words, grace overflows the banks and covers it all. It's like if the Arkansas filled this valley. Grace superabounds. Grace reigns. And then Paul sets up the objection and concern. Chapter 6, verse 1. What should we say then? Those overflowing banks of grace. Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, so do, do you see what I see in these two realms? He's, he already has in mind these two humanities. One is of sin's power and reign, and the other is of Messiah's power and the reign of grace. And Paul knows that a transference has happened from one to the other. So how could we possibly continue to live in sin when we're not in that realm anymore? It, it, it makes no sense to go back. It's like going from one country to another. Shall we remain in Germany? When you're in Italy, you don't keep speaking German, do you? You start speaking Italian, unless you're an arrogant American and then you speak English. And Paul introduces something new. The way that we are transferred into the realm of the Messiah was by a death. We have died to sin. We've died to that realm. So how can we live in it? We've died. How can we live there? How would that be possible? To which we should ask, what is this death to sin? Verse 3. Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into the Messiah, Jesus, were baptized into his death? Now, I don't think Paul is trying to be cheeky with this question. I mean, sometimes he does that as a rhetorical device. I think he's asking an honest question here. He's being genuine. They may be unaware. We may be unaware. We may have forgotten who we are and what realm we are in. So now Paul reminds us by bringing up a part of our story that is ontologically tied to the story of the Messiah. And you all just went, what in the world is ontologically? Ontologically just means a state of being, right? It's a good theological word that you need to have in your lexicon. State of being. Because it's fundamental to understanding this passage. There is a mystery that is happening here that I don't fully understand, but I believe and trust when I'm not suffering amnesia. I am, I am in Messiah. I am, I am in his story. This Messiah who would save the world by what? By transforming the people of the world. And the way that our stories are bound up together, the way they are tied together, Paul says, is through baptism. Yes, that baptism. Not a metaphor, but the actual sacrament. Now, 
maybe that word sacrament gets you a little squiggly as a Protestant because it sounds too capital C Catholic for you. It feels like when it's applied to the two rites given us as Christians, the meal that Jesus gave us and baptism, it, when we call it a sacrament, that, that it automatically implies that there is a saving grace, a saving grace conferred by the practice. So in what is generally an overreaction, we Protestants therefore become deeply subs- suspicious of talking in any way whatsoever that there would be grace of any kind conferred in baptism or the meal, which is a serious error, family. We're about to see from Paul because there's a great deal going on in our baptism as disciples of Jesus. There are fundamental shifts that are happening. There are deep realities that are being experienced. There is a tremendous amount of grace, a tremendous amount of grace that flows to us in our baptism and therefore from our constant remembering of our baptism. And it is just such realities that form the basis for why Paul will make it a center point of his argument, describing how we are transferred from one realm to another. And it all begins with being baptized into Messiah, verse 3. Was this not the command of Jesus before he ascended to the Father? Baptize them what? Into. Baptize them into the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because that's what happened by faith, right? We were made one with Messiah and are thus in Messiah. And so baptism is a sign and a reality of that. And I think that there is a sense, this is why this is why I like sacrament. It, it, it implies a sacredness. There's something powerful that's going on. I, we, we sometimes, so often, we, we, don't, we don't press into the mysterious realities of what are going on in a baptism when we baptize people in the church. This is not some, this, there should be gravity and gladness. Certainly, it's a time of rejoicing and there should be great joy and happiness, but it's incredibly sobering and weighty what's happening in a baptism. I think there is a sense in which every time a baptism is happening, that that person, that candidate in the waters is transferred back to that moment with Jesus, in Jesus, in his baptism. Picturing what he knew would be the right for all of those who would follow and be saved by his name. It's like we're plunged under the waters when he was plunged under the waters. And and Paul has more to say. Verses 3 through 5, all of us were baptized into his death and therefore we were buried with him. Look at this, by baptism into death. In order that, Just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly underline that word in your Bible. We will. I love when Paul talks in boldness like that. We will certainly also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. So Paul is is now proclaiming what else baptism does. 
It reveals to us how we have died to sin and died to that realm and been removed from its rule because in our baptism, we are baptized into his death. And Jesus didn't die because of his own sin, did he? Did he? No, but because of our sin. And he died to death to take away the power of death to penalize us any longer so that we no longer live in the fear of death. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. The power of sin is death and the sting of death is the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and 56, right? It has no... there, There is a sting. But what Paul means when he says the sting is gone is that sting to eternally penalize us, right? We don't want to be silly and say to someone who just lost a husband, well, the sting has been removed when they are deeply in pain. Paul's talking about a condemning, wrath-carrying death. That sting has been removed. We die before Jesus comes back. We and our families will feel some measure of sting. But now having gone under the waters, having been buried with him, because this is the hope. This is the hope for those who lose loved ones that know Jesus. Having gone under the waters and being buried with him, that's not just a symbol, family. This is what, see what Paul is saying is, this has happened to us. We have died with him. We've been buried with him. Having come up from the waters, we are now raised from the dead. Again, not just symbol. This has happened to us by the glorious might of the Father, just as Messiah was raised. That is who we are and where we stand. And in this way, family, you know what? I've never thought of it this way before. Our baptism is like a funeral and a baby shower, all wrapped up in one. And if we could magically do this, like have clothes underwater, what we should do is like, we should all be coming in like funeral clothes, right? (laughs) You should be like all dressed in black like Johnny Cash when you get baptized because this is your funeral. You are dying to that old self. You are dying with Jesus and you go under the waters and then you, you know, like blub, 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 you're holding your breath. You know, take off all those black clothes, put on like the white confirmation gown and come out in white. Would that be awesome? Because it's, it's death and rebirth. Life and light. A death to sin's reign and realm and being raised in the realm of Jesus. All of it happening in a person so that, Paul says, we may walk in newness of life. I never knew this before about this sentence, this word, newness. It makes me think, Ron, of like when we've had conversations and you, you know all those species and genus types of different animals. Like, like this is what this word newness means here. It's of a type of a kind that has never been seen before. Newness. A completely different category. What Paul will also call a new creation, a new self. And then Paul repeats how this happens. Verse 5, we are, in, we are united with Messiah. And that word united there is, is used so often in the day of, of like an organic closeness. It, have you ever seen two trees that are like really close together and their trunks are growing up and their trunks have come together and wound together? That's the picture here. 
We are united. We, we grow together into Jesus. You, you can't, so that, that larger trunk, you can't separate the two trees anymore, can you? That's what Paul is saying. Has happened to you. That's who you are. That's where you've been planted in Jesus. Now do, now, do you understand why I want you to know that word ontological, a state of being? And in what way are we united? What way are we united with him? Well, we are united with him in the likeness of his death, but maybe even more importantly, certainly, says Paul, in the likeness of his resurrection. Which means the Messiah has taken us somewhere else into a new realm. You know, one of the most powerful things that we could take into the rest of our lives is the belief that we stand on resurrection ground. What a, what a picture for us. No matter where you go, you are standing on resurrection ground. And while baptism, uh, are you getting a sense that baptism is more than you thought it was? Wow. While baptism is a, is a visible symbol of the faith that we have inside of us, right? I, I haven't gotten to baptize anybody yet here. I'm looking forward to that. When I baptize people, I always say this is an outward display of an inward reality, right? Like we, we baptize you with this outward display to show there's this faith inside of us. And while that is true at the same time, what this means, this understanding of baptism, is that we may also have faith on the basis of our baptism. Do you see? We, we look back now. We understand everything that God has been doing through our baptism, and it gives us faith because what is true, what Paul is saying is, what is true of the Messiah is true of us. Okay, you didn't respond to that like you should. What is true of the Messiah is true of us. So that we must live in light, therefore, of who we are and where we are because of the Messiah. So maybe you came in this morning. You'd forgotten who you are. Forgotten where you are. And it is my prayer that Paul's recounting of these realities has blown away the fog of spiritual amnesia in your life. Hallelujah. Praise Messiah. But I'm so glad that Paul isn't done describing where we stand. He wants us to know more about this resurrection life that we have been baptized into so that we might fully enjoy living the life of the Messiah. Verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed. Dedikaotai, which is dikaiao, which is the word that we get justification from. So he's literally saying, we have been justified from sin. The person who has died is justified from sin, freed from sin. Now, if we, can we be, can we be, we're, we're gonna be a lot of honest with each other today, apparently. Can we be honest with each other this morning? There's a lot of times where we don't feel free from sin, isn't there? 
we don't feel that that's true, that, that I'm released from the state or control of sin. That's what that word means, that, I, that I'm, I feel like I'm still living in that old land under that reign. But Paul insists that we are not in that realm anymore. And what I love about Paul is that he's not like me. I have this tendency, I get so excited and then my volume goes up. I don't know if you've noticed that. And I think Paul isn't like that in this moment. I think he's not like, so I like gotta bring it back a few notches, turn the volume down. I don't think he's like getting up in our grill and kind of yelling at us like, don't you say this! (laughs) I think probably what he's doing in this moment is he's sitting down next to you. He puts an arm around you. Trying to awaken you from your spiritual amnesia and says, listen, come on, sister. We know that our old self, that person that we were before Jesus, before faith, before our baptism, we know that that self was crucified with Messiah. So don't say the old man made me do it. He's the previous self and he's crucified. You are no longer that old self, no longer in that Adamic line, no longer a part of that humanity or realm. You have left the Adam world for the Messiah world, period, full stop. And what this means, I imagine Paul to say, is that just as you are now a part of the body of Messiah, you are no longer a part of the body ruled by sin. Yes, of course, you are still in the larger world of of sin and death and grace and life. But let's just make sure that we both understand where you are on that map, where you are living. You live in the sphere of grace under the Messiah's power. And just like a dead person can no longer sin, they're dead. So you, having died, have been justified out from sin. You have been declared right by God. He has cleared you. But enough about this negatively flavored talk of death to sin. How about the other side of the coin, that of life? Verse eight, if we died with Messiah, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Messiah, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Oh, family, how remarkable is the life of our Messiah to live in the, in the reign of his power under the sphere of his grace. Just look at the life that is ours in Messiah. Look at what is true of him and realize that what Paul is saying is it is true of us. Have you forgotten who you are and where you live? And he Wright, what is true of the Messiah ever since the glory of Easter day is that he is alive again with a life that death cannot touch. He has not come back. This is so good. I've not thought about it this way before. He has not come back into the same life as Jairus' daughter did or Lazarus or all of those others raised by Jesus, right? Because what happened to them? 
They all died again. His raising involved transformation so that Jesus entered a new mode of existence, a new creation, and get this, one that we do too. Because we are in him. We've been raised. Certainly, we are in the likeness of his resurrection. Certainly. More NT. He has gone on through death and out the other side into a new bodily life beyond the reach of death, a concept we find difficult to grasp, but about which the early Christians are very clear. Paul's point is that if we are in the Messiah, then that is where we are too. Of course, we are not yet bodily raised as we one day shall be, end quote, but family part of the glory of being in the Messiah is that we are presently in the sphere of that power and promise and one day we shall fully be. We shall. Isn't this what John says? One day we will see him because we will be as he is. Oh, we need these promises. <laughs> and Paul's point is that we must live in the present in the reality of our future. We stand right now, where? On resurrection ground. On resurrection ground. We are not in Adam. We are not under sin's power. We are in the Messiah who is alive right now with a life that will be alive forevermore. So, verse 11. So here's what follows from all of that about Messiah. So, you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to to God in Messiah Jesus. And there it is. This is everywhere he's been handed to, right there, that point. He's still sitting next to us, right? Still sitting there on the chair. And he's starting to bring it to kind of a partial conclusion. Next week, we're going to see his full conclusion in verses 15 to 23 of chapter 6. But it's just a partial conclusion. I just, pitch, I just picture him kind of pushing back the chair. You know, like when you're talking to someone, they're really close. And they push back the chair and they look you like right in the eye like they really want you to get something. And Paul says in this moment to all of us, do the math. Do the math. Which scares me a little because I'm horrible at math. But that's what this word is, right? Consider. We, we've seen this word before in chapter 4, verse 3. It's a, it's a bookkeeping term. And, and you reckon, it's like when you reckon accounts in a ledger, Okay, right? Like when you do that, you aren't actually, listen now, you aren't actually achieving anything, are you? I mean, you're doing the work, you're making the calculations, you're getting an answer that in one sense wasn't there before, but the answer doesn't create anything new. Doing the math just represents what was there in the ledger all along. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul wants you to do the same in regards of who you are and where you stand in the Messiah. One author says it this way, it's not to screw up our spiritual courage for a fresh leap of faith in which we imagine ourselves to be actually sinless, and yet we are to actually believe the calculation when it comes out. We don't shut our eyes trying to believe, you know, I'm just gonna believe the impossible. It's just gotta be true of me. No, we open our eyes 
to the reality of the Messiah and his representative death and resurrection. And when we open our eyes to that reality, we realize that we are baptized into his realm. It's who we are. And we stand on resurrection ground. It's where we've been planted. Oh man, I'm working up here. Isn't that good? Oh, this is so good, you guys. That is the gentle challenge of Paul in verse 11. Understanding firmly who we are and where we are so that now, now that we understand that, right? Like, okay, I'm living in this realm. I'm under the reign of grace and of Jesus. He loves me and accepts me. Like I'm fully justified in him through no work of my own. It's just by faith and believing in him. I'm not under that old realm of sin and death. It has no power over me anymore. I'm in him. And then I look at him and he says, now behave accordingly, my son. Behave like who you are. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, verse 12. See, there, there's a command so that you obey its desires and do not offer, another command, any parts of your body to sin. Okay, so you see, this is, make sure you understand this. This is not about an old self. The old self is dead and you are a new self on the timeline of your existence but you could still choose to offer parts of your self, your mind, your personality, a part of your body, Paul says, as weapons for unrighteousness. But, <laughs> there's my favorite conjunction again, right? What did I say? Almost always something good comes after it. And here it is. As those who are alive from the dead now offer this self and all of its parts to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay, I know I already quoted N.T. Wright this morning, but he has a killer illustration about this and I just have to give it to you. Imagine that I am a small landowner living out in the countryside about a thousand years ago. My little farm sits on the border between two great estates. And for years, the lord of the manor in whose land I actually live has had me completely under his thumb. In particular, whenever he has wanted to fight a war or even a local skirmish, he has called, me, called on me to join up and fight on his side. And he's threatened me with all sorts of unpleasant things like burning my house down, for instance, if I don't come along. What's more, he has more than once made me get all my farm implements, nice peaceful things like hoes and spades, and take them down to the blacksmith to make them into weapons like swords and shields so that we go off to fight his wars when really I ought to be looking after the farm. Well, eventually I saw the light and I moved just across the river into the other great estate. Worship team, would you come up? We built a new house. We brought all of our stuff across. We settled down. Fortunately, my old landlord was away at the time or he'd probably have tried to stop me. The noble lord who owns the land where I now live gave us a wonderful welcome and charges us a lot less rent than the other one. From time to time, my old boss has come down 
and threatened to send his henchmen across and do, yes, all sorts of unpleasant things to me once more to get me to try to do all those unpleasant things I once did for him. But I think he's secretly afraid of my new landlord. I get on with my work. I look after my farm and my new master. Well, you know, he gets me to help with his work, which is quite different than the battles my old boss used to have me fight in. My new master is building schools and hospitals, especially for the really poor people. And, and sometimes he asks me to bring my tools in the help of the work. And if someone's in special need, a, a death in the family, a fire, animals are sick, whatever, he asks me to help out in this way or that. Sometimes, of course, it, it's an effort, it's hard, but I'm glad to do it especially for him. Huh. You see, one of the greatest lies of that old tyrant, sin, and his master, the Satan, is that it is God who is really the tyrant. Out to cramp our style out to keep us from having fun and, and really enjoying ourselves, robbing us of pleasure in life with all of his rules. But we know that's not who he is. Or, or at least we're supposed to know that, right? We, sometimes we need reminding of that because we've forgotten. That's what Paul's reminding us of. We are not under law. <laughs> we are under grace, and freedom, and, and life, and, and we're glad to live for him because of who he is, and, and who he's made us, and where he's planted us on resurrection ground at the cost of the life of his son. There's an old Bob Dylan song that we're going to close with now. I'm kidding. <laughs> Maybe some of you older ones know it. Gotta serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but everybody's got to serve somebody. Friend, who will you serve? 